Turn with me or listen on as I read Romans chapter 8. The, the bulletin indicates verse 18, though I would like to read verse 17 along with it. So verses 17 and 18. And hear God's word. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you once more for your word. And we acknowledge, uh, especially now in the time of the preaching, That we depend upon your spirit, not only to assist the preacher in the preaching and carry him along in your in his weakness by your power, but also the hearer that you would grant the hearer faith and a true spiritual understanding of the things which are spoken to him by you in your word. And so we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. In verse 17, Paul introduces uh, what I would call the question of suffering. And I phrase it that way intentionally. I do not call it the problem of suffering because suffering is not a problem. It seems to be a problem. We speak of it as a problem, but understood scripturally, it is not. And it is wrong, therefore, in a denial of the teaching of these verses to call it that. And so let me say again that in verse 17, Paul introduces to us the question of suffering. He does so in terms of our sonship, which was the theme of verses 14 through 17. Those who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. And you remember how he proceeds in those verses. In terms of our sonship, our adoption, we in Christ have been adopted into God's family so that we are sons of God along with Christ. We are made to be like the Savior who is the Son of God. And it is in that likeness that we are made to suffer. Because as the Son of God, He suffered. And so we as sons of God suffer along with him. Already we see Paul is beginning to answer the question of suffering. The question of suffering, by the way, is this. Why are we made to suffer such things in this life if heirs and if children? Well, suffering, the the, the initial answer in verse 17, which he expands in verses 18 through 25, is that suffering is something rather than calling into question our share in Christ, it is actually The very thing that confirms our share in Christ. We're in him. Those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation, he says, chapter 8, verse 1. That's the initial claim. And everything he says following in chapter 8 confirms that. And if we're in Christ, that means we're like Christ. It means our life now is being conformed to his. As he is the son, so we've been made son. So to then heirs, Paul says, verse 17, oh yes, but go all the way with the thought, the thought, not only sons, but heirs. And if sons and heirs, then as God treated his only begotten son, so he will treat his adopted sons. They too will come into their inheritance in just the same way. 
as Christ the Son did, namely through sufferings and subsequent glory. Suffering first, then glory. That's the framework. But having, uh, having worked out the idea of sonship in this manner, concluding it with the idea of suffering, and having concluded it in that way, then introducing the new idea, sonship is the theme of verses 14 through 17. But at the end, he introduces the idea of suffering, and that becomes the theme of verses 18 through 25. That's Paul's characteristic method. He introduces a new idea, in one section, then he develops it in the next session. Uh, section. So, verses 18 through 25 are devoted to the question of suffering. It, 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 again, the question is, why are we thus made to suffer, given that we are heirs and, and sons of God? It is a question, let us admit, that is perplexing. For many, perhaps many of you, What we suffer in this life is the main obstacle to believing. It is the main obstacle to living the kind of life that Paul is describing of the man who has been justified by faith in Romans chapters 5 through 8. The thing that calls into question uh, even day by day your status as sons and your share in Christ. If God really loved me, why uh, is my life falling out? Like this, It is a perplexing question. It has created trouble uh, for countless Christians through the ages. These first Christians were not immune. They were living uh, in tremendous days of the outpouring of the Spirit. And yet even for them, it was a time in which they were perplexed by what they suffered. They were baffled. They were troubled. It, it caused them to call into question their status as sons. We could put it like this, as, as we know in our own experience. Satan was having a field day with them on account of this. Uh, and let us realize that for them, uh, they were suffering in a special way. They were suffering, so many of them, persecution as a result of their calling as Christians. Many of them and, and their leaders were put to death for what they believed. And so they were struggling to face it. We're reminded here of one of the main functions of the preaching of the word, which uh, the epistles are a kind of sermon, if you like. The, one of the main purposes of the preaching is to enable the hearers to face the kinds of things they have to face in light of the doctrines of Christianity. We're not just considering the doctrine, we're experiencing the doctrine. We're putting it into practice. We're seeing, if you like, if we really believe it. So the purpose of preaching is to help the believer to face the troubles he's bound to face, help him to overcome them, help him to face them in such a way that his faith is not stifled. So what they needed and what we all needed is guidance and clear teaching on the subject. These Christians needed someone to tell them, this is how you ought to face And to understand the problem or or the question. You see, I just did it. The question of suffering. Perhaps I still don't understand it if I'm still calling it that. You see, it's difficult. The question, the problem of suffering. We always view it as a problem. We're always asking God, uh, get this out of my life. Deliver me from it immediately. That isn't how the New Testament addresses uh, this issue. It it, It deals with this issue in a very different way. So that's the purpose of these verses before us, which we're beginning now to consider, verses 18 through 25. Another point to make here by way of introduction is that the larger teaching of chapter 8 remains in view 
Paul does not introduce the idea of suffering uh, and, and simply bracket it off as a kind of parenthesis with no bearing on the broader teaching. No, uh, it fits within the broader themes of uh, chapter 8, the spirit-filled life and the resulting assurance of salvation. Those things are still very much in view. So he's telling us two things here. One is that suffering in this life, I've already said it, let me say it again. Suffering in this life should never cause us to doubt our status as sons. I know that it does. Paul knows that it does. In fact, it's probably the main reason we doubt. Well, perhaps not. I, I think sin. Let's put that number one. But this, that's, this is number two. It's the thing that makes us query whether we really have a share in the promised inheritance that we were considering in verse 17. Are great things really coming to me when uh, so much trouble finds me now? But if anything, as we saw last time, it ought to confirm our standing. The purpose of the teaching on suffering is to help us see more clearly our status as heirs. Number two, he's also talking about the ministry of the spirit that hasn't fallen out of you here either. For he says in verse verse 23 within this paragraph, uh, but not only that, we have the first fruits of the spirit. Again, verse 26, likewise, the spirit also helps us in our weakness. He's still talking about the spirit. The spirit is still very much uh, front and center in the apostle's mind. And when he talks, if you go back to the prior verses, when he talks about the mountaintop, the assurance that the spirit gives, the witness of the Holy Spirit, confirming, confirming our status as sons, verses 15 and 16 the apostle is talking to people whose feet are firmly planted on this earth. Who live in this sad world of sin and misery as a result of Adam's sin. Yes, and they are suffering too. The sons of God, the heirs of God, even as they are brought to the mountaintop. To become a Christian, Paul tells us, and I'm telling you, does not exempt us from suffering. This is one of the clearest tenets of the teaching of our Lord. If anything, it is... The thing that makes it most likely that we will suffer hardship in this life more so than others. But in this, the teaching of the apostle is that we are not left to ourselves to endure all that we must endure. You see, the teaching is not uh, the suffering. Uh, well, it, it, the suffering will go away. It will get better soon in this life. No, the teaching is rather that we are called to endure many things. But the comforter is given to us precisely in order that we might be strong enough to face all that we suffer with faith and joy and hope until we get where we're going. So the helper is given or the comforter is given to help us in what we suffer. Well, having made those points by way of introduction, let me come to my main headings, the first of which is. A definition of the glory that Paul is speaking of. Now, we never got to that last time. I talked about what it was to be an heir, what it was to suffer. And as a result of that, that we would be glorified. But I never I never defined it. Another way to describe this is glorification. What is meant by the doctrine of glorification? Both verses 17 and 18 refer to this. Paul says, if we suffer together with Christ, we will be glorified together with Christ. Uh, we also see in verse 18 that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that she shall be revealed in us. But what is meant by glory? Well, clearly, it's something future. 
That's what Paul is saying here. In other words, it's not our present lot. It's something that's going to happen to believers and to to which they look forward. It's where we're going. It's where we'll end up if we're in Christ, but we're not there yet. We're not in glory yet. We haven't been glorified. Uh, Let me put it like this, and this will become increasingly clear, especially as we get beyond verses uh, 18 through 25. Glorification is the great end in view of our salvation. Verses 26 to the end of the chapter really drive that point home. It's the great thing God is accomplishing in saving sinners, their glorification. And, 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 And having been saved... We become aware of it, too. We are aware of the fact that we will be glorified. Paul makes this clear straight away in chapter five. He says, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Already that's in view, uh, though it's really here that he begins to expound that thought. The believer who's been justified is someone who's rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. He's aware of it. He knows about it. This hope is cherished and stirred up in the heart of a believer by the spirit. That's the ministry of the spirit in the believer. So the believer is someone who's looking forward to it. He's expecting it. Paul says uh, later in this paragraph, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And so the believer is someone who knows that he has not yet come into a full possession of all that's coming to him. He is saved now only in part. He's received the down payment. The fullness is coming. We saw that in verses uh, 10 and 11, verse 23 as well. So also he'll later say in verses 29 and 30. And if that is the ultimate end in view of our salvation, then all things of necessity will work together to that great end. Verse 28. But what is meant by glorification? It's the great end in view. It's where we're going. It's what's coming to us for our purposes. In terms of the teaching of these verses, it simply means coming into the full possession of our inheritance. It means, in other words, our our full and eternal entrance into heaven. Our sharing in the glory of Christ that he has come already to inherit by virtue of his resurrection and ascension. It means, uh, likewise, as Paul will say, how, how do we get there? Well, Jesus got there by passing through the heavens. So too will we. It will happen as a consequence of our resurrection, the redemption of our bodies, Paul says, the completion and the fullness of salvation. Oh, yes, we're saved in part only for now. But there is a day which is coming. A hope which is stored up and cherished in the heart of the believer when we will be saved in full. And not only will our bodies be glorified, but we will be brought into a place that is glorious, even heaven itself. Paul says it's going to be revealed. Isn't that interesting language? He doesn't say we're going there. We are going there. But he actually says it's it's going to be revealed. That seems to be one of his favorite words, by the way, revealed. Which means for the time being, it's hid. It's out of view. It's something we can't see. Just as Christ went up into glory out of view, Acts chapter 1, so, and, and he is preparing a place for us, so too 
our future inheritance is hid with him in heaven. It's out of you. It's hid with God where Christ is. The apostle says as much in Colossians chapter chapter three. He says. Uh, let's see. Colossians chapter three, verse three. He says, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears or is revealed, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the thought. And it is a glory that will be revealed. We go on with the thought in us, Paul says. It it cannot be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us or to us. This is a debated point in the translations. I, I, I will State my preference for the King James and the New King James. I notice uh, translations do vary on this point. But I, I, I'm going to go with in us, not to us. I admit the preposition is capable of both translations. But the thought of the apostle here is this. that and, and this is consistent with what he says, and I just read in Colossians chapter 3. When Christ appears... With the glory of himself and his angels on the cloud, uh, attended with the clouds of glory, we will appear with him. We will appear as those along with him who are glorified and thus as those in whom the glory of God prepared beforehand appears for all to see. His glory will be revealed in us. Not just the glory of Christ himself then. But the glory of the saints who surround him. And this is what the apostle says. The believer has to look forward to. It's what he is looking forward to. It's what's promised to him. It's the great end in view of all that God has begun and promised to the believer. And all that he's begun to do in the believer by his spirit. By way of foretaste. Glorification is the great end in view of our salvation. But it's a second point. Notice that there is in this verse a basic division of time. He says he speaks of the present and he speaks of what's going to happen in the future. The Christian is someone who has a view of the present and the future. In other words, as I'm saying, he has uh, he has uh, a division of time which guides his outlook on this life and the next He knows that this world is not all that there is. And the first division is stated like this. Present suffering. By this he's speaking of the present world or the present age. The present age as it is compared to the vastness of eternity. And when it's compared to that, it's something we realize that is relatively short-lived. The world is transient. It's like a vapor that soon will vanish, the present world. And this present age or world in which we live is an age which is characterized, the Apostle Paul says, by suffering and later by futility, though not entirely. The present age is an age of suffering. But there is another division That the the Christian is aware of. And in in many ways you could say that his faith is set on this. Such that he is more aware of this. This is the great reality to which he looks and longs. And that is the future glory. He realizes something the unbeliever does not. 
And that is that the, the history of this world isn't the only one. It isn't all there is. It's, it's all leading up to the great day where time itself will vanish and, and the history of this world will be wrapped up and concluded. And eternity then will begin, either for good or for ill. This coming age, this future world, will be characterized for the believer by glory. Setting it in stark contrast to the present age in which he now lives. For now he knows little of the glory of God, but then he will know nothing else. And let us see, it is coming, it is impending either as doom for the unbeliever or as untold blessing for the believer in a way that's unavoidable. You see, Jesus tells us and Peter tells us and all the apostles tell us that this day will come suddenly and there isn't anything that you can do about it. A day has been set when the days of this world shall end and a new age and a new world will dawn. And then shall begin that which shall never end. Present suffering and future glory. That's that's the division. It is precisely this thought that has led the church to make this distinction historically between the church militant and the church triumphant. And it behooves the believer to know of which he belongs and to which he will soon belong. Are we clear about this? Do we know anything about this? Do we know to which of the two we belong, the church militant or the church triumphant? Do we understand, as Robert Haldane says, that this world is to believers as a field of battle? I think that sums it up as well as any. He's saying it's a triumphant or excuse me, it's 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 a militant world. It's a field of battle. It's a place of suffering and casualties. But it it won't always be that way. You see, this world is to believers a field of battle, but it isn't the only world. Not by a long shot. I know what my present lot is, but I also know where I'm going. One day, the life of the church will be marked by endless triumph and peace and glory. But that leads me now to the applications or uses of the doctrine. The first thing that I would notice that the apostle is doing here is that he is offering this teaching in verse 18 as a matter of consolation. It is a teaching, in other words, you remember I said that Paul is preaching, and obviously I am preaching. It is a teaching which is offered as a matter of consolation and pastoral concern. He knows that these Christians were suffering in ways that we have not known, that perhaps we may. Who, Who can say? But the apostle here isn't just saying, you know, uh, you're going to suffer. Get over it. He's saying, I want you to experience genuine consolation, genuine comfort through all that you suffer. Not only that, but to have the kind of faith he'll later say that that overcomes the world. Despite all the things that you suffer. That's the first thing. These are verses which are meant to comfort the believer, especially when he's suffering in an unusual way. They teach him, as as Burroughs says, the secret of Christian contentment or the art. But then as a second point of application, this teaching has a way of determining the Christian outlook on this life. His view of this world, life for the present, the teaching which is offered here, if truly believed and taken to heart, will cool the desire of the believer for great things in this life. 
he will find that his expectations and his hopes for this world are tempered greatly. And it will make him think more of the next world than the present. He'll say, I'm a pilgrim here. My home is elsewhere. My citizenship is stored up in heaven. My life is hid with Christ. That's where I long to be. That's what will soon be revealed. And so the entirety of his outlook is characterized by hope for the future, not hope for the present. That's what we've got to see. His hope, his faith, his treasure are all set on the world to come. And so uh, to use the language of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, the believer is someone who strains forward and presses on for the goal of the upward call in Christ until he obtains it. Not that I have obtained it, Paul says, but I'm pressing on until I have obtained it. And what was that goal? It was the resurrection of the body. It was experiencing the glory that is promised to believers. Until uh, he possesses it, he is not content. Not content, I mean, in the kind of way where he longs for more. He longs for something that God has said is coming to him and has promised to him. And until he obtains it, he seeks it. He longs for it. He longs to possess it. And he knows that soon he will. That you see, it doesn't just bide his time. He presses on. He presses forward. Hope is what mobilizes him. It's what makes the church militant. It's what gives life to her faith. Uh, and so on. Let, let, let me keep going. Uh, it, it, it especially as a third point of application determines his view or his attitude towards his own sufferings for the present. For one thing, uh, let me let me say, and I think the Apostle Paul here is saying that there is no room for self-pity in the Christian life. There's no room for grumbling or complaining. Do you remember how hateful that was to God in the Old Testament? And yet let us admit that we are prone to be a grumbling people. The smallest amount of suffering comes to us and we complain and we grumble. What the, what the apostle is saying is that that is excluded entirely from the Christian outlook. And the Christian who understands this is a Christian who will not complain and will not grumble. But he will even be made to rejoice in hope of the glory even as he's suffering. But it also gives a sense of true proportion for what we suffer in this life. It's for the present, he says. Whatever we may suffer, it, it's subject to this limitation. It's for the present. It's a short little while at most. It simply cannot compare to what, what's coming to us, he says. And so our sense of proportion could be put like this. It's a sense of disproportion. The Christian, whenever he suffers in any form, must think of this. He must consider the glory that awaits him. He can't think of one without the other. He can't suffer now without comparing it to the glory that's coming. Beyond that, he realizes that this is part of what helps him get there to the glory that he's longing to be uh, enjoying. God is fitting me for heaven, he thinks. He's weaning me from this world. Suffering uh, in that sense is valuable for the Christian. It keeps up a lively hope in his heart of heaven. It also gives further occasion to mortify the flesh. Suffering has a tendency in itself to mortify our fleshly desires by frustrating them, by countering them. And so it becomes the arena where faith is said to flourish and to prosper. 
Faith is prospering even as the believer is made to suffer. Never did the faith of the saints seem so lively and they so lovely and full of grace as when they were made to suffer. That's the argument of Hebrews chapter 11. But finally, suffering is something. The reality of suffering is something that I know. The reality of suffering in its true proportions is something that I not only know, but I believe and I'm able to work out what I believe. I'm able to reason out in my mind. It's a matter of reckoning. Paul says, I reckon. Here's the key to facing suffering. It's to exercise faith. It's to reckon with the truth. And notice certain things here in in what he says or in New King James, it's I consider. I believe in the King James, it's it's I reckon. And and I you know I read the older commentaries and they all were saying I reckon. So it must be it must be uh, reckon in the King James. But consider is the same idea. He's considering something. He's taking it to heart and and working it out in my mind. And, and, and as he says this, notice first how intensely personal, uh, intensely personally Paul is involved in this. It's a truth that he owns for himself. I reckon. I reckon this about myself. I reckon this about Christians in general. I reckon that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. You see, it's personal. And was any man ever more qualified to reckon or consider such things as the Apostle Paul? You think of the glory he witnessed. You think of the things he suffered. This is a truth, let us see as well, that is only for Christians. It's a comfort only they are entitled to. In other words, I'm able to reckon this because I'm a Christian. The Christian looks at what he suffers and he can deduce things the unbeliever cannot. Indeed, suffering for the unbeliever, we could say, is but a foretaste of what he will suffer for all eternity. He is not conscious of uh, the contrast, but rather... Uh, We could say the foretaste if he was able to see what was really coming to him. But it is exactly the opposite for the believer. There is real comfort in suffering for for the believer. He's able to consider it. He's able to know it. He's able to believe it. And so what he's saying here, let me say as well, involves the faculty of the mind or of reasoning in facing difficulties. Here's what he's saying in effect. Don't stop thinking Just as soon as you face some difficulty, that's the worst thing you can do is to become emotional uh, or reactive. You need to stop and think. The moment you are facing a real trouble, a real hardship, that's the time to think, to ask yourself, in other words, what do I believe and do I really believe it? And is this thing that I believe able to help me? And if it isn't able to help you. When life gets difficult, is it of any value at all? You see, when life gets difficult, that's when it becomes clear what you really believe and whether what you believe is of any value to you at all. That's the test. That's the arena of faith. And Paul is saying that the Christian is someone who believes things so great and so wonderful that he is able to reason them out and to think them through even in the hardest moments of his life and especially them. The test is, can we reckon what Paul does? Can we work out the doctrine like him? What's the doctrine? Narrowly, simply what he says in verse 17. 
that if we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, we will suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. And having clearly worked out that doctrine in our minds and settled it in our hearts, we can add as a matter of deduction, I consider that the sufferings of the present Time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. How do I know it? Well, I know it because of what I know and believe in verse 17. One thought leads to the next in the mind of Paul. And so it will in ours as well, provided we really have believed what was said in verse 17. But we must also realize that the Christian life isn't all bare, rugged suffering. I don't want to present that truth. And the Apostle Paul is not presenting that truth. Suffering is the context in which we live our lives, but it is not the totality of our existence. In fact, life for many of us is so easy, we might wonder if the passage or even the sermon has anything really to say to us. So as we go on, we will see that Paul will define suffering in a surprisingly mundane and ordinary way in verses 19 and following keep that in mind as we go forward but let us see and here's the point i'm making now that there is more to the christian life than suffering much more it's just not a good idea to try to define it apart from suffering but having it clearly uh, reasoned out in our minds that all who follow jesus will suffer in this life we should see what else is true of them Not only that they are heirs and thus something great awaits them, but that even now they are enabled to enjoy this blessing by way of foretaste. There is a foretaste of future glory afforded to the believer by the spirit in increasing measure day by day. And the more he is made aware of the glory that awaits him and is made to taste it by way of foretaste by the spirit, the greater his sense of disproportion is of what he suffers now compared to the glory that awaits him. Such indeed is the thought of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outer man is perishing, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Here is a man, Paul is saying, who is quite literally wasting away in the outer man. You think of a very aged person. Perhaps you think even of yourself. I'm wasting away. I'm conscious of it. The longer he lives, the worse it gets. Suffering not diminished, but in that sense, the longer he lives, multiplied. A process of decay that he cannot reverse or stop. He's getting worse all the time. But just then, Paul says, as a kind of counterweight... There is this daily inward renewal, working in him a greater view of heaven, a stronger sense of its glories and joys, its eternal, uh, its eternity. All the while working hope in his heart for those vast eternal glories and joys, causing this brief transient life to pass out of view and to seem as nothing by comparison. You see, to compare them at all is to see that there is no comparison. And this is the truth that the believer is becoming increasingly aware of, even as his sufferings are multiplied, as the spirit is working in him. The weight of glory by the process of inward renewal. 
That's the point. And the more the weight of glory weighs upon the soul, the more it becomes clear to the believer. And so the Christian, the Christian is a man who's tasted the heavenly fruit. He knows its taste, that it is sweet beyond comparison. And he suffers for the present as a result with one eye on this world and one on the next. And as he suffers, he does so with a sight of glory. He looks forward to it and by faith he welcomes it from afar. But seeing all this as Paul does as something intensely personal, I ask you, and here is the real test. Can you say what Paul does here? Can you say it with the same note of confidence and assurance? Do you find that you're not only able to say it, but that you're saying it in increasing measure? That you're not only aware of it, but you're becoming more aware of it all the time. Even as you are aware, conversely, of the things that you suffer. So you are made more aware of the glories that await you. Or do you still find every trial and every difficulty coming into your life as a, as a way to unsettle your faith? As presenting an obstacle to believing. Here's the real question. It's whether we really believe all this. Do we believe it when it matters? Do we believe it in the hour of temptation? Do we believe it in the hour of trial? Can we find as Christian people. Anything to help us. When we find that things are against us. Especially because of what we believe. Will our faith help us then? What do you think? Do you see the martyrs and find something strange? Their faith faith flourishing even as they were made to suffer in untold ways. Or do you understand that it was faith itself that made them to shine as bright lights in what they suffered? Look at Stephen as they stoned him. What is it that stands out most clearly and brightly in his witness? It was that he eyed more the glories of Christ than the stones they thrust at him. That's what the believer is like even now. Even as he suffers in a more mundane and ordinary way. He's like Stephen. He minds more the glories of Christ than the trials he faces. So too we could say of Christ. As the book of Hebrews says. Looking unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him. Endured the cross despising the shame. And has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know anything about this? The testimony of the martyrs, the testimony of the saints, the testimony of Jesus Christ himself, our elder brother, the son of God. Above all, are you looking to him as the author and finisher of our faith in his sufferings and his consequent glory, looking unto Jesus? That's what he says. That's the key. That's the secret to suffering in this life. That's the answer to the question. Consider what he suffered, what he endured for sinners, and where he went having finished his sufferings. He went to the Father. He entered into his glory, prepared for him, and now he's preparing a place for you. And then realizing this, setting your faith on Jesus Christ. Realize that the Christian is a man who's joined to Christ, and so his fate is joined to his. He's a joint heir with Christ. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So we will be able to say, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Amen. And let us come to the table together.